So I take more of a bird's eye view of race, more of a conceptual view. After all, I'm a philosopher. Um, just trying to make sense of how we discourse about race today. So over the last three decades, our discussion of race in the public sphere has been very, very pernicious. And what I mean by that is when you look at three movements in particular over the last three decades, we started with multiculturalism. Right around the time of the founding of African American studies departments, uh, it was sort of the tail end of the great book debates. And then we have CRT, and then we have wokeism. Wokeism is sort of a basket for all of the previous movements, but it's a bit more fierce and pervasive. But in the public square, the idea of being colorblind when it comes to racial matters has steadily faded. They've been challenged. They being the principles of colorblindness have been challenged. What is colorblindness? It's the idea that the mere possession of hereditary qualities like race should not confer moral merit by their possession or dispossession. The principle of colorblindness is a relatively old idea in America. So think about Justice Harlan's dissent, 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. He said, quote, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. And in respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. Now keep in mind, this dissent was in the context of a record number of lynchings during the time of black Americans. But still yet, America is resilient. As a country nearly 245 years old, I think we have navigated the issues of race and identity as well as we could, as well as could be expected, given the tension brought about by our founding documents and slavery on our shores. But through it all, we've stayed true to the principles of 1776 and 1863. How? By recognizing individual rights, not group rights. The American project acknowledges the individual, not the group, which means Americans intuitively know it's more morally right to judge a person based on their character and not on their race. In other words, Americans know it's morally right to be colorblind. But recently, what's happened? There's been a weariness when it comes to the issue of race. It could be due to guilt, but whatever it is, Americans seem to have been lulled and intimidated into equating the colorblind approach to race relations to a type of colorblind racism. So imagine that. To be colorblind is now considered to be colorblind racism. This is an unfortunate occurrence, and it pretends a dim future for the United States if left, if left unchecked. Now, we can point to many factors that have contributed to that. 
many institutions we could certainly uh, uh, highlight. But I would say far too long, American conservatives have been too willing to give a fair hearing to points of view and ideas that are contrary to core American beliefs. In a diverse society such as ours, very few ideas or points of view have been as destructive as the anti-colorblind pedagogy. Am I saying that conservatism needs to practice a bit of illiberalism? Perhaps, but I think it's important enough to recognize that not all ideas in the public square should be acknowledged or debated. So what's the pedagogy? the anti-colorblind anti pedagogy. It teaches that the best way to navigate cultural differences in the United States is to openly discuss and highlight racial and ethnic differences. Highlighting differences of race, they argue, makes explicit the structural nature of white economic and social power and how it is per perpetuated at the expense of black Americans and other people of color. Any attempt to downplay ethnic and racial differences, they argue, or homogenize communities of color by offering platitudes about a supposed American identity is seen as pernicious and a form of colorblind racism. But however, to highlight the racial and ethnic differences among Americans is to devalue the unifying elements that have traditionally defined the American identity. And so let's talk about a few examples of this anti-colorblind pedagogy. From coast to coast, Americans have acquiesced to racial practices and policies. So much so that we have celebrated writers saying that babies can be racist. Right, Kindy? And you might remember at the elite Fieldston School in New York City, the lower school, that the lower school principal devised an equity curriculum in which she, she, she separated, they sorted kids depending, depending on their racial category, right? And so you had, what, what she wanted to do is to have the, ki the white kids become aware of the fact of, of how privileged they are and how alienated the black students are because of these traditionally white spaces and institutions. That's sickening. That, that, that's, that, that's child abuse. We're talking about third graders. Other policies, sort of writ large, affirmative action. It's now justified on diversity grounds, which means all people of color are incentivized to balkanize along racial lines to gain preferential treatment in school admissions and employment. And as a side note, affirmative action coupled with a porous border, that's a bad combination. The pernicious effects of affirmative action has played out in many ways across the country. Think of the various 10% programs. You might have heard of that. The Texas Top 10% program. That's the most well-known. So, the, the top 10% of high, high school seniors are automatically given spots at the flagship universities in Texas, and, and this program exists in a number of other places. But the assumption is, is that in each of these 
these places, Texas in particular, the urban areas are so segregated, they can guarantee diversity by merely letting in the top 10% from each of those segregated schools. So you have Hispanic, white, and black. Now that's, that's awful, right? Because you don't have blacks in particular or Hispanics in particular or whites competing with, one another, with, with, with each other. They're simply competing with their group, right? They're simply competing with their group. And so this is sort of a clever way, according to the left, in order to, to guarantee the type of diversity that, that they want, presumably. But the track record of this program is, is, is poor because a lot of the students, in particular black students, don't graduate. They don't get their degree. And it's condescending because it says if you have black students competing with others, other groups, there's no way they can meet the standard. There's no way. Same with Hispanics. And of course, Asians are discriminated against, right? The bar for them is even higher. It's pernicious, and it goes, it flies in the face of colorblind principles and beliefs that have animated this country. And let's just be honest, the underrepresentation of African Americans in particular has fueled these types of programs. Not that other groups don't benefit, but it's, 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 it's black Americans in particular. But these sorts of programs are very blunt and crude, and they end up typecasting schools, people, based mostly on the ascriptive quality of race, which is just the opposite of the colorblind approach. Now, what does this lead to? So we have the Filson School separating kids, third graders, and then we have these policies sort of writ large. It leads the left to say, well, of course these policies are justified because you have victimizers, white people, and you have the victimized, people of color, blacks in particular. Isn't this the very definition of racism? Now, What's the alternative? I see I have five minutes. Uh, what's the alternative? I argue that a certain type of ethics is important, specifically ancient Greek ethics. Now, I'm not naive to think that we read a book, we read Plato's dialogues, or Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, we're gonna all of a sudden uh, sort of revive our institutions and we're gonna become colorblind. I'm not that naive. But I am saying that the Greeks have a robust conception of agency, exactly what Ian talked about. Agency, what are some of those features? Thinking about the best way to live or what to do, they, the Greeks, focused on two things, determining the right thing to do and doing it properly motivated. Although bad people can certainly do good actions, they cannot do actions as the good person would do them, which is to say, properly motivated. And then lastly, and perhaps we can get into this, for the Greeks, and what I think we should embrace, or at least attempt to embrace, character is not the product of factors that fall outside of the sphere of choice, voluntary action, and how choice is exercised. The body and what belongs to it is not a virtuous character producing type of thing. 
right? The body itself doesn't produce character. Thus, for the ancient Greeks, ascriptive qualities like race played no role in the formation of character nor the assessment of character. So when society assigns moral status to race, as Dr. King illustrates, bitterness and hatred becomes the main currency through which Americans interact with one another. The reason for the antipathy has everything to do with the arbitrariness of assigning moral status to racial characteristics. When character becomes the main currency through which Americans interact with one another, the relations between the races is less stilted, more fluid, and natural when we look at another person's character, not their skin color. And lastly, the colorblind approach that I take in the book has to prevail for many reasons. But the most important reason is that it's more integrative than self-regarding identities based on race, gender, or sexual orientation, and more effective at promoting a sense of American identity. Thank you.